Chapter Fifteen of the Master Mystery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Master Mystery by John W. Gray and Arthur B. Reeve. Chapter Fifteen. There was a moan from the front room. Eva was recovering from her faint. The automaton indicated to the emissary at the switch to do nothing until he had found out what was going on. Locke had, meanwhile, recovered consciousness and realized his awful position. Here was a situation which, on its face, seemed unescapable. Yet Locke would not give in. Straining every effort, he tried to extricate himself before the deadly current could sever the thread of life. Seconds seemed ages. Still he tried. With a mighty effort he strained every muscle of his gigantic chest, and the very straps that held him groaned from the force of his muscular exertion. Even now the death man was at the switch, and it was barely a question of seconds or heartbeats between him and death. With a quick twist of his giant shoulder, he threw his whole weight against the chest strap, and it parted. Lurching forward, he freed his head and neck from the cruel straps, which snapped and parted. The death man paused for a fraction of a second to see what caused the commotion in the chair. To that pause, Locke owed his life. With a final supreme effort, he threw himself on the floor, just as the knife switch swung into position and the wicked blue flame of death leaped across the head electrodes. Once freed, he catapulted himself across the room, and with a vicious uppercut sent the emissary sprawling unconscious to the floor. Without a thought of himself, he rushed into the next room, where Ava now stood in panic, glued to the spot, in fear of the Frankenstein monster that would crush her in its grasp. With murderous mien, the thing crossed the room slowly until only the table stood between her and destruction. Like a wild animal, Locke hurled himself into the room and with a master stroke of quick wit flung the heavy oaken table over at the monster. Then he seized Eva, and before the monster could turn in its tracks, half dragged, half carried her from the room. In the hall, further difficulty confronted Locke, for the place was well guarded. Several henchmen darted forth from dark corners of the murky place and would have intercepted him. As the first approached, Locke, with a quick jiu-jitsu thrust, hurled him for a fall that would have broken the back of a less hardy man. The next one was just turning the top of the stairs, and Locke, quick to take advantage of the situation, adopted the only means of escape. He seized the man bodily about the waist, and, lifting him over his head, threw him upon his other oncoming foe. The result was that the two were flung down the stairs. "'Run!' he cried to Eva in a voice that was a command. Without waiting, he picked her up and carried her over the sprawling mass of legs and arms to safety below. Once outside, he felt a little embarrassed at having the beautiful girl in his arms, and he half-murmured an apology as he placed her feet gently on the ground. Life at Brent Rock was far from monotonous. 
like a great game of checkers, the various members of the establishment were being moved about, guided by some strange hand, it seemed. Now one, then another seemed to gain the advantage, and as each strove for control of the vast fortune, the battle of wits surged back and forth. Balcom was playing a game, it was plain. But to what extent? Sometimes it seemed as though Zita was his aide and would stop at nothing to succeed. Again it was that Zita played the game alone, still fostering her secret but hopeless love for Locke. Again it seemed as if Paul were playing the game, either alone or with someone else. Just now it was apparent that Balcom and Zita, for their own ends, whatever might be the identity of the automaton, planned a coup for themselves. During one of Locke's absences, Zita had secured access to his laboratory, and while looking around had discovered the dictograph hidden in the desk drawer. Often Balcom and Zita, either together or alone, had taken advantage of the discovery. It was at a time when both were using the mechanical eavesdropper on Locke and Eva in the library that Locke suddenly decided to return to the laboratory without saying anything about it. Zita's quick ear heard him down the hall. "'Quick!' she warned. "'Someone is coming!' She sprang toward the closet door, which stood ajar, and in an instant Balcom was with her. The two were concealed in the closet as the laboratory door opened and Locke entered. Locke walked to his tables of test tubes and picked up one containing mercury. What prompted this action he did not know. Perhaps it was his fascination for the elusive metal. Perhaps it was some subconscious feeling. At any rate, he held it aloft and gazed at it in the light. As he did so, a strange thing happened. Reflected in its surface on the glass, yet distorted like a convex mirror, he could see the door of the closet open, just a crack, and the evil faces of Balcom and Zita peer out. He did not move, nor did he in any way betray what he saw, but nonchalantly set the tube of precious metal down and pretended to seek something from the table. He turned slowly and retraced his steps to the library below, where he entered, holding his fingers to his lips in warning to Eva not to speak. He walked quickly over to a writing desk, took a pencil, and began to write. "'Balcom and Zita are listening on the dictograph. Pretend to quarrel with me.' Eva read in amazement as he wrote. Quickly she comprehended. Then they walked silently until they were almost under the chandelier which held the transmitter of the dictograph. "'I have something I want to say to you, Mr. Locke,' began Eva, with a wink and a smile at him. "'And it grieves me to say it.' "'What is it?' asked Locke, with distinct anxiety, winking back. "'I am afraid I shall have to dispense with your services,' continued Eva, as she reached out her hand and gave Locke's a little squeeze. Upstairs, Balcom and Zita listened intently, their heads close together, so that each could catch every word. Balcom was nodding with satisfaction. 
Each looked at the other as though they could hardly believe their ears. "'But I have tried to serve and protect you,' protested Locke, as his face wreathed in smiles at Eva, who was carrying the deception off perfectly. Then he added, plaintively, "'I am sorry that I have failed.' "'Your protection has led me into danger.' returned Eva, in her best voice to denote anger. "'And your seeming interest is out of place. And besides, Mr. Locke, Paul Balcom does not like your being here. You know he is the man I am to marry.' As she said this, Eva looked roguishly at him. Locke's face clouded a little, although he knew it was only in a joke. "'But Miss Brent—' he continued to protest. I had hoped— Not another word, Mr. Locke, interrupted Eva, as she edged very close to him and gazed into his eyes. Please leave this house at once. I hate you. And, not suiting the action to the word, she reached out and gave his hand a squeeze that told more than words what her true thoughts in the matter were. Locke leaned over and was on the point of kissing her, when she held up her hand and pointed to the receiver above in the chandelier as if it really had eyes as well as ears. He looked up and was forced to check a laugh lest it be heard by the listeners above. In the laboratory, Balcom had heard enough. He turned to Zita and with a hurried command told her to go downstairs. "'Keep an eye on him and tell me where he goes.' was the parting instruction of Balcom as the two separated on the stairs at the very time that Paul blustered in the front door. "'Morning, Governor,' nodded Paul as he gave his hat to the butler. "'A very good morning, Paul,' emphasized Balcom quite unctuously as he went on to tell his son of the supposed quarrel between Eva and Locke which he had overheard. A light of triumph came into Paul's eyes. Ava's happiness, even her life, meant nothing to him. She was merely a means to his own evil ends, and he now felt sure that he held her in his grasp. Besides, in so far as such a selfish nature can care for another human being, Paul cared for Deluxe Dora. There was a satisfaction for him in her tigerish, unscrupulous nature that a good woman could never inspire. And now, as he eagerly listened to his father, he visualized new motor cars, a yacht, rivers of champagne, a life of mad gaiety with his favorite pals, men and women. Locke, in the library, was laughing quietly with Eva over the success of the ruse. But there was, notwithstanding, an undercurrent of seriousness running through their thoughts for although they had scored against their adversaries in misleading them as to their intentions, both realized that Balcom was a tremendously clever man, astute and wise beyond the average in the ways of the world, and that the slightest lack of caution, the smallest flaw in the acting of the parts they had elected to play, would inevitably lose for them the advantage they had gained they went into the most minute details of the plans they had formulated, and they realized that in order to keep the wool pulled over Balcom's and Paul's eyes, it was necessary that they separate 
at least apparently, for a few days. Locke gave out that he was to seek evidence in the lower quarters of the city, while Eva was to play the game at home. It was to Eva that the more difficult role fell. Locke bade her an affectionate farewell, and left by a door opposite to the one leading to the main hallway, where the voices of Paul and his father were now audible. Eva opened the hallway door and greeted Paul, feigning delight and chiding him for his long absence, which had not been even a day, intimating that there must be some woman in whom he was interested. She made a pretty show of jealousy. Paul, wearing his vanity on his sleeve, was delighted and his eyes shone with satisfaction. He took a step forward and attempted to take Eva in his arms, but she evaded him playfully while he pursued her. Finally she could bear no more. The game revolted her. She made the excuse that she must attend her father and ran upstairs. So a day or two passed, days which were sheer torture to Eva. Paul called every day, bringing her little gifts, and it must be acknowledged that he showed exquisite taste. They took long walks together. On horseback they cantered all over the country. Friends called, and it was at such times that Eva found her only relief from Paul's attentions. Many a rubber of bridge she played just to escape being alone with him. End of chapter 15 Recording by Roger Moline